Okay, First John, that's where we are. First John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. If you're using one of those blue church Bibles, you can flip open to page 1021. That'll bring you right there. We'll be looking at, again, verses 12 through 14 as we move through this letter this morning. I titled this message, Words of Encouragement. I'm not... I'm trying to figure out. I, there's a message here this morning. There's also more of education about how it is that I look at a passage and try to figure out what it means, and maybe that'll help you in your studies of Scripture. So there's there's a couple of things going on this morning. I titled this "Words of Encouragement." I'll get to that in a moment. Why 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 I titled it that? But you know. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, he says, listen, this is the second letter I'm writing to you. So he wrote 1 Peter, he's also writing 2 Peter. He says, this is the second one I'm writing to you, beloved, my dear ones. In both of them, here's what I'm doing, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. By way of reminder. So basically Peter's saying, listen, I'm not really telling you things you don't know. I'm telling you what you know again. And that's important because we're forgetful people, aren't we? We forget the truths that Scripture teaches. We forget the wonders of our salvation. We forget the truths of the Gospel, the realities of the cross. And that's why we need to be told again and again and again. We forget. I think there's a little of that going on here in this section of 1 John. So we'll look at it and then kind of a long introduction and we'll begin to break down the passage together. It says in 1 John 2, follow along with me as I read it, the Apostle John writing to the Christian church there, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, it may not look like it, but these three verses, 12, 13, and 14, that I just read, are some of the most difficult verses to interpret in the entire letter. The meaning of this small section is greatly debated among Bible scholars. Okay? There's different points of view about exactly what John is trying to communicate. Out of the four, four interpretive issues. Now listen, when I come to a text and I'm beginning to study it, sometimes it's crystal clear. Many times it's, it's very clear. you just got to work through it a little bit. Sometimes there'll be an interpretive issue, something I have to wrestle with and figure out, something that's difficult. There are at least four here, four problems that are presented in the text when you're trying to understand what it actually means. And that's, that's really the issue, isn't it? We're trying to figure out what John meant when he wrote it. What was his intention when he recorded these words to the church? It doesn't really matter what I think it means or what it means to me in some subjective kind of way. What matters, what you've got to get at as studiers of the Word, is what did the author mean when he wrote it? What was his intention? Who cares what you think? What matters most is what he thinks, 
Now you can take that meaning and begin to make application of it into your life. So, one of the four that is the most significant, because the other three are not as significant, they are issues, but one of the four is this, and that's the one we're going to address real quickly. How to understand John's use of and purpose for the titles children, fathers, and young men when he addressed his Christian readers in these verses? Listen, views differ here on whether he is making physical age distinctions or not, or whether the terms are being used metaphorically or symbolically to represent, for instance, different levels of spiritual maturity. So as an example, some suggest that his use of children here speaks of new Christians who are not very mature. His use of fathers means mature Christians, and his use of young men is Christians somewhere in between children and fathers. You can add to the difficulty of the interpretation here the difference of opinion that exists among Bible scholars about how many groups John is actually writing to in these passages. Some believe John is addressing one group. One group. So all the phrases, children, fathers, young men, somehow represent that one group. So, for example, all Christians are children in innocence. All Christians are young men in strength. All Christians are fathers in experience. That's one view. Others believe, and I'll just let you know right now, this is where I'm going, there are just two groups here. The writer addresses all his Christian readers as children. That's the entire group. And then he proceeds to address two particular groups within the church as a whole, those two groups being young men and fathers, which could be either a reference to their age and or their spiritual maturity. Still others believe there are three groups represented here. Each title then represents a different group in the church, spiritually speaking. So there are children who are... Well, we'll get to that in a second. So spiritually speaking, they're all at, in other words, they're all at different levels of spiritual maturity. Children being the youngest in their spiritual maturity. Not actually children, but young Christians in the faith. Young men being the in-between stage and fathers being the most mature or advanced in their spiritual maturity. And in all of that, there are slight variations to all of these options. Are you confused yet? Yeah. So needless to say, I have wrestled with this passage this week. It's been very, very difficult. Very difficult. I worked on it. still working on it yesterday. Still trying to make sense of it. I'm going to do my best to explain the passage, but as I understand it, but I just want to share with you quickly what guided me to some of the things that guided me to the interpretation that I'm drawing from this. And at the same time, I'm going to acknowledge that there are different views and some of them have good merit to them. And when I get to heaven, one of the questions I will ask the Apostle John is exactly what he intended when he wrote 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. There's several passages like that in Scripture that I want to ask them, what exactly did you mean? Because I'm just not, we're not sure. I'm just not sure. I'm not positive. So let me help you understand how this works or how I kind of got to where I am in this section here. First, look back at the text. You see the use of little children there in verse 12, little children? 
That phrase John repeatedly used in this letter. We've already seen it in 1 John 2. He uses it to address all of his Christian readers. If you just look back up, 1 John 2, 1, he uses it there, just a few verses before this section. And as I said to you when we looked at it then, this was a term of endearment. A term of endearment. It's, it's like saying sweetie or baby. Uh, it's expressing John's care and love for these Christians. He is acting to them like a father. Like a father has love for his children, he's expressing that love by calling them little children. They are adults. They're not little children. So it's a term of endearment. Jesus, by the way, addressed his adult disciples in exactly the same way. And I said this to you before, I think a couple of weeks ago, in John 13:33, He called them little children. And John, the Apostle John, was there. Okay, so he's just using the same phraseology that his Savior used with them in addressing these Christian brothers and sisters that he cares so deeply about. So I'm inclined to see the use of the term children in verse 12 in the same way that it's used everywhere else in 1 John. In other words, it's not being used to make a distinction in age or as a reference to a lack of spiritual maturity or symbolically to represent innocence. I don't see that, although some authors do. I believe it's simply how John lovingly refers to the Christian community that he cares for and to whom he was writing when he recorded these words. Now, there are many scholars that agree with that view, the one I just gave you. But a few go on to point out that the word children at the end of verse 13, you can look at it there at the very end of the verse 13, he says this again, he says, I write to you children. They point this out. You can't see it in the English, but it's actually a different Greek word for children. And they say that John might be using the term there to speak metaphorically or of the spiritual immaturity of the baby Christian. That's what they suggest. Listen, that's hard for me to accept. And the reason it's hard for me to accept is it's exactly the same word he uses a few verses down in 1 John 2.18. Look in your Bibles. Look at verse 18. 1 John 2.18 you see the word children, how he starts off that section, and then he says, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. The Greek word that he uses at the end of verse 13, translated children, is the same Greek word he uses here in verse 18 that is translated children. Now it is clear that he is referring to the entire church. He is addressing the entire church here. And he addressed them again as children. Little children, children. I think the words are interchangeable. I think these are just words he uses as terms of endearment towards this family of God. This is certainly, that word up there, is certainly not a reference to only one segment of the church that are immature Christians or baby Christians. He's not, he's not saying, okay, now just you baby Christians, listen, it is the last hour. Again, it's clear in this passage, he's He's writing the entire church. So I, I, can't, I can't see here that John is intentionally trying to make a distinction between the two uses of children because he used a slightly different Greek word. Beyond that, Jesus also used the same Greek word to address his adult disciples 
Again, recorded for us in John 21, verse 5. This was the resurrected Christ, and he calls them, as he's referring to his disciples, he calls them children, okay, adult men. And I, I, it would be hard to see that he's speaking to them that way because he thinks they're immature Christians. I don't see that. I, I can't get there. And like I said, while there is some difference in the two Greek words, I don't think there's enough difference to support this idea that he is, John is, intentionally making a distinction between the children in verse 12, where now he's addressing the entire body, the Christian community, and then we get to verse 13, he changes it up a little bit to metaphorically or symbolically speak of immature Christians. I just, I can't get there. Beyond that, when the word children is used in the New Testament to actually speak of immature Christians, because it is, sometimes immature Christians are referred to as children, it is an entirely different Greek word than either of the two that are used here in verse 12 or verse 13. And you can look up the references in Ephesians 4, 14. That's that one where it says, don't be like children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You can look up Hebrews 5, 13, which is actually a rebuke about the immaturity of the Christians. And then 1 Corinthians 3, 1, where there, in our English translation, it's actually translated infants. Infants, like little babies in reference to Christians, and specifically in reference to their immaturity in the faith. They need to grow up. Okay, They need to grow up in the faith. So, here's the bottom line. I believe John's use of the term children in both verses 12 and 13 is a reference to the entire church, and he's simply using it as a term of endearment, as is consistent with his entire letter. But once you take that position, okay, here's the thing. Once I accept that, and that's where I am, I, I'm accepting that based on the, some of the things I just told you, it limits your options about what you do with the rest of the passage. And so some commentators, they, they see it differently, and they'll say this is metaphorically speaking, so we have children who are baby Christians, young men who are in-between Christians and fathers who are strong, and they can really preach a powerful message with that. The only problem is, and it's simple, I mean, I could preach to you about spiritual growth, you know? Whether you're a baby in the faith or whether you're a young man or you're a father, you're growing up and you're moving on and don't stay a baby and all these things. And it sounds really good. And most of it would be, you know, accurate and true and I could find other sources to speak to you that way. I just don't think this passage is talking about that. That's the problem. And I can't go that direction because I don't think children is that type of reference here based on the things I've told you. So... What about the terms young men and fathers? What about those terms? Well, these terms are never used in the New Testament, the 27 books, to refer to the entire church community. You're not going to find that. So these are best understood then as two different groups within the church or subdivisions of the entire church community that John is identifying here. And this may just be John's way of simply referring to the older and the younger members of the church. Did you hear that? It could just be that. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. And it might be worth mentioning to you right now that there is no middle age category in the New Testament or in the ancient culture. You know, we have young, middle-aged, I'm not even sure what that is anymore, and old, okay? But in the Bible, there are only two categories within the church, young and old. That's it. 
And in fact, and if you want to verify that, you can look at 1 Timothy 5.1 that speaks about the older and the younger. Those are the only categories within the church. Or Titus 2, 1 through 8. And when you look there, when we think of young, maybe we're thinking of teenagers, right? But in the ancient culture, young would have gone a lot farther than that. It probably would have included what we call middle age today. And older was a lot older. Okay, because in Titus 2, 1 through 8, there, they're instructed young women, teach the younger women to what? Uh, pick up their rooms? No, to love their husbands, younger women, to love their husbands and their children, plural. You know, this is the idea, they've had multiple kids already. So how young exactly are these people? Well, I don't know, but I think it would extend through middle age. The bottom line is there's only two groups in the Bible when we talk about age, old and young. So why does John make a reference to these two different groups in the church? Well, I'm going to attempt to answer that as we look closer at the text. But in regard to these terms and the number of groups addressed in these verses, whether it is one, two, or three, much of what Bible scholars say or write is really speculation. Okay? Speculation is opinion based on incomplete information. Now hear me. I give you speculation from the pulpit from time to time because we don't have all the facts. So we take what we have, and I'm going to call it sanctified speculation or godly speculation. We do the best we can with the information we have, and we try to come to a position. Not everything is crystal clear in the Word of God. We just don't have enough information, or we don't know what was going on culturally. We just don't know. So we make good guesses. Okay, And some guesses are better than others. But all I want to say to you here is, in this particular passage, when I read Bible commentators, there's a lot of speculation. A lot of speculation going on. So they'll write like this, what John perhaps, or likely, or apparently intended. Okay, I use words like that too, and I'm communicating something to you. I'm not positive. I wouldn't die for this. Okay, I can't be dogmatic or absolute. So they use words like that, likely, perhaps, based on everything we know, based on the Greek, based on the culture, based on the full context, based on the entire Word of God. And then they'll say, you know, listen, the terms here really mean, that always makes me nervous, implying they mean something beyond their more natural or normal meaning. Okay, we have to be careful when we do things like that. Of course, some Bible teachers, when they get up, especially preachers, because they like to give it to you, right? They don't say maybe or perhaps or apparently. They say, this is what John meant. This is what John meant here. And they have their reasons for their conclusions, but this is all I want to tell you before we jump in. It's not as clear. Okay? If someone comes to you and says, this is what this passage means, I'm going to tell you right now, you pour 25, 30 hours into this message and then you'll know for sure it's not as clear as some of these guys presented it to be. It's just not. It's a difficult text. So all of that, I'm saying that all to you, kind of just letting you into my world a little bit and also encouraging you in, in your own Bible study. It's not easy. We have to Study is hard. It's worth it. It's necessary. It's important. But study of the Word of God is, is hard. Sometimes it can be very, very difficult. So all of that just caused me not to be dogmatic here and try to, try to simply pull out the things that I think can be supported from the text, actually. Okay, and what I believe best fits in with the context of these verses. In other words, 
These verses, 12 through 14, here's another lesson I want to teach you about Bible study. They are written in the midst of 1 John. So see, what happens is you'll come and you'll hear a message on the radio or, or you'll hear a pastor speaking or whatever. He'll take a text. He may be pulling it right out of the letter and then he does whatever he wants with it. The problem is you're, you can't do that. That's not good biblical interpretation. I have to... I have to keep it within that greater letter. John didn't write verses 12 through 14 on a piece of paper and send it to the church. He wrote chapters 1 through 5. And so I have to consider the entire letter when I'm looking at this. That's why the whole children thing comes in. See, if I didn't see John was calling them little children, little children, little children throughout the whole letter, then maybe I could just take these verses and go, oh, look, it's obvious here. He's got three groups, children, young men, fathers, children, young men, fathers. And these three groups, well, they are spiritually speaking of uh, our maturity in the faith, and I could get away with that. But if, I, if you read the entire letter like I do every week over and over again, right away you'd go, wait a minute, I'm not sure this... That works, and I'm also not sure that he's talking about the things these guys say he's talking about. Why would he stop and do that in the midst of chapter 1 and 2? That's the other thing. So when you read all the stuff that comes before these verses and all the stuff that comes after, some of the interpretations you hear pastors give, although they sound great and they're true in and of themselves, don't fit really with the flow of the letter. Does that make sense to you guys? So I give you a little bit of that just to kind of so I don't know why. Just for training purposes, really. Because I want to help. Because you, you need to become students of the Word yourselves, right? You don't, you don't want to come here and just listen to the pastor and then that's all you get? Please, that's not enough. You need to study the Word of God for yourself and hopefully I can help you in doing that, certainly. So I think the primary point in these three verses, here it is, it's encouragement. That's why I titled the message that way, Words of Encouragement. It's encouragement by reminding the readers about their salvation and assuring them that John believes. John believes that they are saved. And that is why he is writing the things that he is to them. He believes they are saved. He is assuring them of their salvation. Listen, as we've been looking at this book together over the last several weeks, John has been laboring away, pounding away, and he will continue to do it, right? About what authentic Christianity is and what it isn't. Who's in? Who's out? Who's genuine? Who's fake? In part, he has been doing this to refute and call out those who were promoting a false form, a false form of Christianity by what they taught, what they said, and how they lived their lives. But he wants to remind his readers now, in the midst of this heavy letter and all that he's saying, listen, you know, you love your brethren, then you know God. You hate your brethren, you're in darkness. You're a murderer. You don't know God at all. In the midst of all that, he wants to remind his readers that he's writing to his little children of his assurance that, listen, you guys are the real deal. You're the real deal. In describing these fake and knockoff Christians, those who profess Christ but don't possess Christ, he's not writing about them, okay? His readers, that is. But he's writing to them. 
about the knockoffs. And that's what I think he wants them to be aware of. He is warning them and instructing them that they may not be led astray or tempted to follow after these deceivers. And that's exactly how he refers to them in 1 John 2.26. Listen, I'm writing these things to you that you would not be deceived. Beyond that, he says, I'm writing these things to you that you might have assurance, that you might know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are saved. We see that in 1 John 5.13. And they'll know that to be true as they are able to acknowledge the evidences of authentic Christianity as John lays them out in his letter. Listen, just a few verses later, he'll write this kind of thinking right here in 1 John 2.21. He says, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth. That's not why I'm writing to you. But I'm writing to you because you know it. You guys know it. And listen, no lie is of the truth. And what these false teachers, these professors of Christianity, they weren't possessors, they weren't the real deal, all that they were giving and spewing forth were lies. Not only by their their, their words, but their life itself was a lie about what true Christianity is. So, it is, let me try to capture this all in a bottle again. It is because of John's assurance of their salvation that he now is instructing them in these things like don't sin or keep the commands of Christ or sacrificially love the brethren, as we've seen that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, the verses that lead up to these verses 12 through 14. And following 12, 14, he will then tell them to resist the temptation of loving the world, a world that is passing away, a world that is opposed to God. That's why he tells them these things, because they are the real deal. And John knows that it is actually because of their salvation, because of that reality, that his readers are spiritually capable of complying with all that he has said about what true Christianity is. Not only can they comply externally, but they will comply internally because they are motivated and empowered to do so because they have a relationship with the Father who is in the light. So verses 12 through 14, in my view, is really just a pause here. It's a pause in the middle of John's instructions to his readers to assure them of John's confidence in them, in their Christian faith. And by that, encourage his readers to press on, to not be sidetracked, to not be persuaded or deceived by the Christian pretenders who were promoting a very different type of Christianity and were preaching a false or inaccurate Christ. That's what he's doing here, I think. So, we will consider three statements, this is in your outline, that John wrote to the Christian community that provide us the proper foundation and motivation to live out his instructions. All that is written in the letter of First John. And I think that's, that's why it was written to them, and that's the application that we can make to us as well. So let's try to work through this this morning. First, this is what he says. He basically says in First John 2.12, your sins are forgiven. 
your sins are forgiven. Look at the text, 1 John 2.12. That's how it opens up. He pauses. Here's a break in the middle of everything he's saying. He's going to assure the readers of their salvation and his confidence in their salvation, which is the encouragement and the motivation that they'll need in order to continue pressing on in light of everything that's going on with the church in that particular time. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Let me start with that phrase, forgiven for his name's sake. Listen, this simply means that Christians, that's who he's writing to, are forgiven because of Jesus Christ. That's all that means. Okay? And more specifically, because of what he, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, willingly did according to the Father's plan when he laid down his life on the cross in order to secure forgiveness for sinners. That's what he's talking about. We see that in Acts 4.12. It says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, the idea is repeated in 10.43 in the book of Acts. To him all the prophets bear witness. And if you read that section there, the him is Jesus. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone believes in him, that is Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So again, this is not, there's not a magic to his name. It's not like you say his name, like saying abracadabra, and it opens up the doorways of heaven to you. What the writer is saying, or what John is saying in 1 John, we're forgiven for his name's sake. It's just a reference to the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he's done. We're forgiven because that one, the name, the only name given under heaven among why, by which men must be saved, laid down his life on behalf of sinners that they might be forgiven. That's all it's saying. It is because of Jesus Christ and him alone that a person... If a person places their hope and trust in Him, they can and do have eternal forgiveness of their sins. They are and will be saved from the wrath of God. They can and are reconciled to God the Father and they have eternal life. Because of our relationships with Christ, because of that, our sins are, not will be, but are, but are forgiven. The Greek is in the perfect tense. You go, so what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that the action has taken place in the past. Okay, It's taken place in the past. It was completed. And it still has present results. That's what it means. Because of the cross, Christians have been forgiven of their sins. And as a result, the present reality is they are forgiven. Of their sins. Now, beloved, maybe that's old news, old news to you. Huh? You've been in the church for a while? Oh, yeah, I've heard this a thousand times. I mean, how many times do I need to hear this? That uh, I've been forgiven of my sins. But John thought it was important. In fact, it's the first thing that he brings up when he takes this short break here. It's the first thing. Little children. I am writing to you because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. It is truly that reality. It is truly the foundation of our hope and it is the motivation for living out our Christian lives, beloved. 
It is the truth that causes a Christian to want to serve Christ and follow Him. It is the truth that causes a Christian to want to not sin. It is the truth that causes the Christian to want to obey the commands of Christ and to love His brethren. Not out of duty. Not out of obligation. But out of love. Out of love for their Savior and for their Father who sent His Son into the world to save His people from their sins. Listen to this quote. I thought it was very helpful. It's from a book called The Discipline of Grace. Highly recommend it. Written by Jerry Bridges. The quote goes like this. The good news that our sins are forgiven because of Christ's death fills our hearts with joy, gives us courage to face the day, and offers us hope that God's favor will rest upon us. Not because we are good, but because we are in Christ. If we are going to persevere as committed disciples of Jesus Christ over the course of our lives, we must always keep the gospel of God's forgiveness through Christ before us. John is writing to these Christian people because their sins are forgiven. That's what he's saying. That's the foundation for a life of glorifying God and glorifying obedience to Christ. It is, it is the very bedrock of why we follow Christ and obey Christ and love Him and obey Him. Without that foundation, beloved, then obedience is at best, at best, only external. I'll comply, I'll comply. And it's done with a burden. Later on, John's going to tell us keeping the commands are not burdensome. You want to know why that's true? Because we have experienced the reality, those who are truly Christians, of the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. And therefore, out of love for such a great gift and such a great giver, we are motivated to live out the Christian life. Listen, we need to remember and recall this on a regular basis basis as well, right? Because we are forgetful people. We are very forgetful people. And we have a lot of stuff coming into our lives from many different directions that crowd out the truths that we really should be focused on throughout our day and out our week. I wake up in the morning and the first thing I don't think about, I don't usually think about, is I am forgiven of my sins. I think about a lot of other stuff. And when I lay my head down and I begin to rest, often the thing I do not think about is, I am forgiven of my sins. I think about a lot of other things, usually what I have to do tomorrow. But that's the first thing that John addresses to his readers. It is the reality of the forgiveness of sins for the Christian that brings us, or at least should, bring us encouragement, motivation, and inspiration to live out the Christian life, to live for Christ, to obey Him with joy and without reservation. Forgiveness of our sins, beloved, through Christ, should not be old news for us. It is the good news. It is the good news of the Gospel that you and I need to hear again and again. It is a truth that truly motivates us to live for Him. 
I don't know about you, I'm not one of those type of guys that can watch a movie more than once, not typically. I've seen it once, that's it. I know there's some of you out there, you can watch the same movie over and over and over again and still enjoy it. But in regard to the forgiveness of sins, this would be a mistake if I treat it like I do movies. It should be something that I watch and hear and repeat and take in again and again and again because as I do, I find in it assurance of my salvation and motivation and encouragement to actually live for Christ. To the Christian, John writes, your sins are forgiven. Second, he writes, you know God personally. Look back at the text, 1 John 2.13, like the third verse down there, last part of that. He says, I write to you children because you know the Father. You know the Father. No here does not mean they know things about God. He's not saying you simply know stuff about God. People can know many things about God. That doesn't necessarily mean they're a Christian. Rather, John's readers have an intimate and personal relationship with the Father, with God, because of Jesus Christ. That is what it means to know Him. Christians through Christ have been literally adopted, spiritually, into God's family. That is what it means to know, to know the Father. As it says in John 1.12, But to all who did receive Him, that is Christ, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. I've said it before, we are not born as children of God. We must become children of God. We can only do that through Jesus Christ. Christians by faith in Christ have become God's children. He is actually their Father. And beloved, we could not have a better Father. He cares for, watches over, guides, and lovingly transforms His children into the image of His only beloved and begotten Son, Jesus Christ. He then forces every circumstance in our life to work together for our good and to accomplish His glorious purposes in our lives. He is a gracious and lovingly our loving Father to His children. That's why John will say in 1 John 3, the same letter, 1 John 3, 1, he's blown away. He says there, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. See how great a love! Can you believe that? We are, through Christ, Children of God. Beloved, what, I don't know if that doesn't impact you or it's just like, yeah, I've heard it all before. Listen, hear it fresh. Hear it new. To know the Father. To, that's, you know, maybe we just take it for granted. Yeah, you know the Father. Listen, what that means is you have entered into a personal relationship with the God of this universe, the God of creation with the Holy One, you have been adopted into His family and He is now your Father. Now John was writing to his readers because he believed, he, he, he was convinced that they actually had a personal relationship with God and he wanted them to be assured of that. Listen, why? Because in view of what was going on at that time, which you had these heretical or false teachers who also claimed to have a relationship with with the Father, but they were walking in darkness. They were denying their sin. They were not obeying the commands of Christ. He says, listen, they may make the claim, 
But you really and truly actually know the Father. You know Him. You have a relationship with Him. And then he says in 1 John 2.13, and this is where it starts to get a little dicey because we're trying to figure out, okay, what's going on? Before that, in that passage, he says, I am writing to you fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. And he'll repeat this statement again in verse 14. And there's all kinds of speculation about why he's repeating these things. We don't know. We just flat out don't know. We can speculate. I just don't want to do it because I don't know. But he makes this statement. I know that. Here it is. I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. The him here that the fathers know, here's another one. It could refer to God the Father. It could refer to Jesus Christ. Now, if you weigh up the scholars on one side and weigh them up on the other side, most of them think it's referring to Jesus Christ. But to know the Father, bottom line, is to know Jesus Christ. The two are linked. To know Jesus Christ is to know the Father. One writer says, perhaps here as elsewhere, John's not drawing a very clear distinction between the experience of God and the experience of Jesus, since in practice these are so closely associated to be virtually indistinguishable. Possibly. But as we read in the beginning opening verses of 1 John, there he says in 1 John 1.3, and indeed, speaking of Christians, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So, either way, it works. They know Him. They know the Father. They know Jesus Christ. Now, the title Fathers, this is where we kind of have to work through this, when not being used literally like it is in Ephesians 6.4. So, there in Ephesians 6.4, Paul is giving advice to fathers about their children. Okay? But I don't think that's what's going on here. He's not talking about the parental relationship between fathers and children. I think it's being used in the same way it's used in Acts 7.2 and 22.1. You can write those down if you want to look at them later, but it's a, it's a way of showing respect for an older generation. They're the congregation, the people that are being referred to are referred to as brothers and fathers. So I think here in 1 John, it is undoubtedly being used to address John's readers who are older Christians. They're older Christians. All right, so why single out, if that is the case, why single out the fathers or the older members of the congregation? He's addressed the whole congregation, children. Children, your sins are forgiven. You know the Father. But now he backs up and divides that congregation into two groups. This is is what I believe. Older and younger. Why is he doing that? Well, I believe he's narrowing in on those in the Christian community whose relationship with God was more mature or deeper because they had a longer period of time to cultivate that relationship, having simply lived longer with the Lord than the younger members of that Christian community. And as a result, these older members had experienced to a greater degree the goodness and the grace of God in their lives. Their mature relationship with God then is what John is distinguishing or drawing out in this body. Listen, we know John is not implying that only fathers know him. Would that be accurate? If that's what it means, no matter how you look at fathers, it can't possibly be that John is saying, well, the fathers know him, but no one else knows him. All Christians know or have a personal relationship with the father and his son. But it makes sense to me 
that John would remind the fathers specifically of the re- that reality in their lives. Listen, it would go something like this. Listen, fathers. Listen, you, you older members of that congregation. I'm writing to you because you really, you really know Him. You have a long history with the Lord. Your faith is rich with experience. You know the true Christ. There is no doubt about it. So you do not need to be disturbed or alarmed by those deceivers who are trying to lead you astray and say or imply that you really don't know Him, but that they do and they have something you don't. I think that's what's going on because there was these roots, we've talked about it, I don't have time for it, of Gnosticism. It existed in its full force later on, but we see roots of this. And part of Gnosticism is the idea that there's a select higher group of people who have a special knowledge that no one else has. And so they were acting in that way. They're in the light. They know things that no one else knows. They have a direct connection with God. And I think John is saying, listen, fathers, you know Him. You know you know Him. You've lived long enough to know this is a bunch of baloney that they're trying to lay on you. You have a long and enduring and rich relationship with the Father. I am writing to you because you know Him. There is no question about it in my mind. And you, fathers, you older Christians, you have a life of faith to prove that and to give you the confidence to press on, to stay the course, to not sin, to obey Christ, to love the brethren, and to not love the world. Now, we're so out of time, it's not even funny, but I'm going to try to get through it as quick as I can. We only have one more point, but listen... Beloved, for us, for us that have, as we move through our Christian lives from, from new babes in Christ to becoming more mature and growing with the Lord and spending time with Him, it's good for us to regularly and often take a, a spiritual inventory, I would think, and remember all the ways that God has worked in our lives. That's how I'm, I'm trying to apply this. That's what I think He's calling on the fathers to do. You know Him! Hello! Remember! You have experiences with the Lord of the universe. You know that you know Him. Remember! And I think that's what we should do. Some of us have fewer experiences. Some of us have a lot of experiences. And whenever we're feeling down and beat up and and even wondering about our salvation, we can just go back into that spiritual inventory and look and see all that God has done. And from that, not only do we draw assurance of our relationship with God, but it motivates us to know Him deeper and greater and to continue to pursue Him and long for Him to come again. That's what I think. Finally, you have overcome the evil one. That's the last point. So, you have been forgiven. You know God. You have overcome the evil one. This is in 1 John 2.13 and also it's repeated again with a little more information in 2.14. In 2.13, in the middle of that section, he says, I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. In 2.14, he writes, I write to you young men again. It's repeated. But this time he adds, because you are strong 
and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, John will talk about the evil one again in chapter 3 and in chapter 5. He'll bring that situation back up again. The, this overcoming of the evil one is with little doubt a reference to having victory over Satan. This is, he's talking about a, a person, a victory over the evil one. Satan is the source of evil and the one who exercises power over the world. And he'll, right after he's done talking about this, in verse 15, the next thing he brings up is not to love the world. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies, oops, sorry, lies in the power of the evil one. We know we're from God, but the whole world lies in or under the power of the evil one. So I, I have little doubt that that's what's going on here. That's the reference to the evil one, is Satan. We don't really know, though, exactly what John is thinking about when he says, you have overcome the evil one. Again, you read commentaries, I hear all kinds of things and speculation, but I don't see it in the text. It's just not there. Is it something specific? Is he thinking about a specific event or is it just a general statement that they've overcome the evil one? Look at, if you're in your Bibles, just look over at 1 John 4.4, 4, just a few chapters over. Chapter 4, verse 4. There he says, he addresses them again, he says, little children, you are from God, you are, and have overcome them, them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's interesting. Now, in that text, we'll get to it eventually, the them are the false deceivers, the false professors, the one trying to, to tell them, hey, there's a better way, a new way, a higher way to actually know God or to be a Christian. He's saying, he references there that they, were, they overcame them, these false teachers who promoted demonic-inspired messages. They were, for lack of a better term, emissaries or uh, servants of Satan. Servants of the evil one. For they promoted a false message and a false Christ. And they attempted to convert the true Christians to their false thinking and way of life. It's possible that these young Christians then, it's possible, I don't know, stood their ground and prevailed against them. Maybe they even chased them off. I don't know. Or it could just be a general statement like the overcoming of the world that lies under the power of the evil one. Because John will also speak to that in 1 John 5, 4. There he says, everyone who has been born of God, every Christian, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Bottom line, I'm not sure if this is general or specific, but the point is this. Here's what I know. These young Christians overcame. <laughs> That's what I know. They were victorious over the evil one. They experienced spiritual victory on some level, and John reminds them now of that reality in their life. Now let me go back. As with John's words to the fathers about them knowing God, he says that specifically, and I said clearly John is not suggesting that only the fathers, regardless of how you understand that, but I believe it's the older people in the congregation, the older Christians, he's not suggesting they're the only ones that know him, right? That doesn't make sense. Likewise here, John's not implying, he can't be implying here that only the young men or the people in the church, uh, young people in the church had actually overcome the evil one or that the word of God abides in just them. That can't be what's going on here. 
So why is he singling out the young people of the congregation and acknowledging their victories against evil? And here's what I think it is. Having already addressed the older and more experienced in the congregation, the fathers, I think he then focuses on the remainder of the Christian community. Remember I told you there's only two groups, young and old. So he now narrows in on the young, which would include the middle age, and identifies the thing that mostly characterizes young Christians. And that is their spiritual strength and zeal and energy. And energy. Again, this does not mean that the young are strong and have overcome the, uh, that only the young are strong and have overcome the evil one. But it was a spiritual reality that evidently the young believers in the church could identify with, and John wanted to point it out to them. I think that's what's going on. I think John was simply identifying a spiritual trait in their life that distinguished them as Christians. That was their spiritual strength. Don't we know that to be true on some level? Those that are... Listen, older people have... Their strength is their wisdom, their experience, their life with God lived out over a long period of time. Younger people in the congregation, their strength is their zeal, their passion, their fire for the Lord. And when I say younger, I'm not talking about teenagers. I'm talking about all the way up to middle age. I mean, as you get older, you just... I'm afraid to look at anybody in particular, but you lose some of the, the, the Z. It's, it, you know, life is hard and it's a burden and it wears on you. But what you draw on is that foundation of that long experience with God. And we look to the younger who have more zeal and passion to go and attack and hit it hard. And, and in this particular setting, this is, listen, I've, I've addressed the fathers. Now listen, you young men, you've overcome the evil one. And whether he's speaking generally or specifically about their battle against those deceivers that came into the church community, I don't know, but the reality, they would have known. They knew it, and they knew it well, and he wanted to point it out to them. They may not have had the experience and benefits of knowing God over a long period of time, like the older Christians in the community, but they had experienced victory over the evil one in their Christian life. And it was a victory that came and would continue to come from the fact that they had a relationship with God and His very Word abided in them, lived in them, dwelled within their mind and in their hearts, which gave them the power to overcome the evil one. So I'll just say this, and then we'll close. Never underestimate the motivation and assurance that is released into a Christian's life when he overcomes the evil one. Listen, when I... The most excited I see Christians get and fired up is when they talk about the reality of overcoming sin in their life or overcoming this evil world or standing up against it because what it communicates to them loud and clear is he that is stronger that is in you is stronger than he that is in the world. It communicates that assurance, that reality that something's going on inside of them that is changing them transforming them and empowering them to stand up to the enemy, to stand up to the enemy and to have victory. And that would include all forms of evil and such. And that not only motivates you towards those things, but it assures you of your reality that you actually know Him, that you are in Christ. 
All right, so this is it. Christians, we need to be reminded of these truths and we need to continually reflect on the realities in our lives. And if you don't like this message, that's okay. You can toss it aside. But you can at least think about it. Come back next week because next week we will look at the next set of passages that says, do not love the world. Do not love the world. And I think, I believe that this was a setup for that. Listen, I know you guys are forgiven. I know you know the Father. I know you have overcome the evil one. That's why I'm writing these things to you. That's why I'm about to tell you, don't love the world. Don't do what those deceivers have done. Don't be led astray. They may claim to be Christians, but they are not. You actually know the Father. You actually have a relationship with the Son. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for our time together. We thank You for Your Word. Father, I pray that You would use it to accomplish Your purposes in our lives, that You would transform us through these realities, that we might remember and recall and meditate on the truths of being forgiven. That that might resonate in our minds, in our hearts, that we would take spiritual inventory of our relationship with You, our our knowledge of You, the the knowing of You that we have because we have been adopted into Your family. Jesus Christ is, is not just some guy out there who died for sins. He is our Lord and Savior that died for my sins. He died for me. He is my Lord. Father, that we would remember these times where we have overcome the evil one and And Father, take hope in that, knowing that we didn't do it in our own strength, but it was the strength of knowing You and Your Word, Your powerful Word abiding in us. From these things, we might draw assurance of our salvation and be encouraged to press on, to press on, to live as John has instructed the Christians to live, to to not sin, to not sin, to obey the commands of Christ, to love God, the brethren, as we look at next week, to not love this world. We ask a blessing on these things in Christ's name. Amen.